could just sit, oh, I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, hope to feel your presence, and I could just stay, oh, I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you, hope to feel something I could hold on, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. I could be safe, oh, I could be safe here in your arms and never leave home, never let these walls down. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper and I'll go where you Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Worship at Fusion this morning. We're so glad that you've joined us in person as well as online. Again, welcome. Good morning. And as we begin to worship together, hear these words from Psalm 104. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing along with us.
hosts on high his power proclaim heaven and earth and all creation Lord and magnify his name all creation join the song of praise let Good morning, everybody, and again, welcome to Fusion at this time. We'd like to invite our kids over to that side of the room to head down to children's worship. And of course, if kids want to stay in the service, too, we encourage that as well. So we want you guys to feel at home, too. But if you want to head down to children's worship and meet over by those doors, we will uh, take care of our little parting greeting here in just a second.
Good to see all your smiling faces this morning. All right, looks like we're just about there. And of course, we have our blessing on the screen. Adults with me, if you would. The Lord be with you. Great job, guys. Have a good time downstairs. Again, welcome everybody. If you would join me as we move into a time of prayer, we're going to begin things by reading a few verses from Psalm 121. Let's pray. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Lord, we're, we're truly grateful to have the maker of heaven and earth watching over us always. Life can be hard, but to know that you are there guiding our path, giving us stable footing is truly a comfort, especially when life is at its hardest. Lord, there are many in our community that are facing difficult times ahead, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a hard fight against an illness or cancer, or healing from a broken relationship. Uh, we ask to feel your presence with no doubts left in our minds. Help us to feel your presence like never before, Lord. Lord, thank you for this community. Thank you for the opportunities we have as people that care about you and that care about each other to be your hands and your feet. Thank you for those that come alongside of us when we need to be lifted up, and thank you for allowing us to walk alongside those that need to be carried for a little while. Grant us the strength and courage to be there for each other when we need it the most. Grant us a spirit of unity that's undeniable, even when the world around us may seem so divisive. Lord, thank you for the beautiful fall that you've granted us. Thank you for the reminder of your artistic brilliance and the beauty that you present to us to enjoy. Lord, thank you for our friends and our families. When we find ourselves feeling restless, help us to find rest and to be rest for those that we are closest to. Thank you for this time together, Lord. Bless us with your words, and thank you for being a God that allows us to come to you and before you with humility and confidence. Amen. Thanks, Nate. And good morning, Fusion. Good morning, good morning. It is, it is good to be back, or at least fully back. Uh, me and a couple, my aunt and uncle kind of snuck in at the end of the service last week, and I just want to say thank you for your gracious welcome uh, of Pastor Jeffrey. Uh, do you remember? I'm trying to remember. Which was this? Amen. I need to use that. Anyway. He can do that so much better. He can get away with that. I don't, he said I was cool. I don't know about that. Jeffrey's cool. There we go. All right. If, if, if you missed and you're like, what is the pastor doing with all this? Check out the YouTube channel. Pastor Jeffrey uh, is part of Angel's Community in the heart of Muskegon. And uh, we've made this connection. We're not sure exactly where that connection is going to go, but we're going to trust the spirit to that. So looking forward to that. Also today, quick reminder, uh, potluck. We got a potluck today. If you're like, oh, I didn't bring a casserole, that's okay. Come enjoy the potluck. Uh, but a little, a, a little housekeeping. We're going to need some help turning over the room because we're going to be eating right here. And so Norlin will be here to kind of help uh, direct that, but we're going to have to take the middle chairs, stack them, move them out, and then bring the outside chairs in. Anyway, someone more smart, smarter than me will figure all that stuff out. But last week, Pastor Jeffrey uh, gave us a powerful word on courage and faith from the book of Joshua. But this morning, what I want to do quickly is just fill in the story, because we're in a series called The Story, and we're taking the whole narrative of Scripture. Uh, so quickly, fill in the story of Joshua uh, to kind of intro us into where we're going to be studying today, which is the book of Judges. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we ended with the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy tells this, these final words of Moses on the the banks of the Jordan River right before the people of God enter the promised land. And then Joshua tells the account of the conquest of the promised land, the land of Cana, by the people of God. Here's a little summary on the screen uh, that kind of just summarizes the book of Joshua. The first five chapters in the book of Joshua, really Joshua is portrayed as a new Moses. And what you see is all of these parallels that echo the story of Moses. And what the biblical authors are telling us is that Joshua is like Moses. And so they crossed the Jordan 
Jordan River and the waters part. He gives the law. Um, they send spies into the land with different results this time. And then chapters 6 through 12 uh, really really share the battles and some stories about the battles uh, of the conquest with some contrasting stories that kind of have those listed there where, where Jericho, where, where God is faithful and the people of God are faithful, and then uh, Ai or Ai, depending on how you want to pronounce that, where, where Israel is fails, right, and, and keep some of those items for themselves. Then there's some other contrasting stories about the people's response, the Gibeonites who turn to God and the Canaanite kings who do not. And then finally, chapter 12, Israel is a list of all the victories in the promised land. Then we get to chapters 13 through 22, and if you're reading through the Bible, it's another one of those stretches where you're like, oh man, a lot of details. This is retelling of, of how the lands are all divided. A lot of chapters committed to that. Then Joshua ends chapters 22 to 24 where we're Joshua uh, offers this choice, asking the people who, what they will choose, faithfulness to God or unfaithfulness. And we have this uh, well-known verse in Joshua that says, as for me and my house, right, we will follow the Lord. That brings us to the book of Judges. Now, just a quick word on the book of Joshua, and I sent this in the email. If you're not on the email list, send an email out. Um, we'd love to get you added to the email list. But there's some questions and some concerns as you read through the book of Joshua. Conquest, the violence. There's a lot of things to wrestle with. The email kind of begins to wrestle with some of that. Um, but, but there's this telling story in Joshua 5. Uh, Jericho is Joshua 6. So in Joshua 5, right before their first battle in Jericho, we have this story uh, on the screen. I think we have, Glenn, do we have that slide? There we go. Joshua 5, verse 13 through 14, Joshua comes across a man carrying a sword who's actually an angel of the Lord, and we read this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us, Israel, or are you for our enemies? And the angel says, neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Some of the questions that get, get raised up is, what is all the violence against certain people? God, you know, this is not a story about God's favoritism toward one people, allowing them to do whatever they want and disdain for another, nor is it a story about people having, like people of God having this ultimate tactical advantage. This is a story of God's plan to redeem the world that is deeply corrupted by sin. And all of this kind of plays a part in this narrative. It's not about Israel versus Canaan. This is about God's plan, God's battle, and Israel getting on board. Are you with me? And so here, just, just one other quick word. I understand that November's around the corner. We are in the heart of an election cycle. Here's one quick word. If we are asking the Lord, whose side are you on? God, are you with us or are you with our enemies? The answer is neither. And if we're asking that question, we're asking the wrong question, right? Now, we can let our faith inform our, who we vote for. Absolutely but not the other way around, okay? God has a redemptive plan that is the calling us to love and bring the gospel toward all people. And so my call, my, my hope is that we get on board with God and not pretend like God's on, right? Do you got that? God is his own side, amen? Are you with me there? Amen, okay. So let's jump into the book of Judges. The book of Judges uh, recounts the story of Israel. Joshua gets the people into the promised land. The book of Judges retells of how that all plays out. Israel in the promised land after the conquest. We see in chapter 1 is Israel has compromised. God, he, they've failed to completely drive out the Canaanites. And so what we see is, is various tribes of Israel are enslaving different people. Canaanite peoples. Uh, some of them are making treaties. And what happens is that, that this remnant of Canaanite religion and idol worship kind of remains to fester in the promised land while the people of God are trying to establish themselves as a new nation. And Judges begins to tell how that's going to play out. How is that going to go with these Canaanite religions kind of still in the land? And, uh, you know, what could go wrong, right? Well, let's read. Let's step into the book of Judges. We're going to be reading chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. If you're willing, if you're able, I invite you to stand as we hear God speak to us this morning. Judges 2, starting with verse 10. After that whole generation 
had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, words that, that recount events of long ago that continue to speak truth into our lives today. Spirit, we pray that, that you would do that translation for us, that you would help these words to land in our lives and our hearts so that in hearing from your spirit this morning, Lord, we would be formed more and more into the likeness of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen and amen. We are nearing the end of October, and uh, anyone with, with little kids knows that tomorrow is, is a big day, right, in kids' lives. Um, it's Reformation Day. No, okay, yeah, it's, it's Halloween, right? It's Halloween. And, uh, and, and I don't know about you, my kids have, you know, all the different things about Halloween. What do they care the most about? Candy. Trick-or-treating, right? I, I've said this before, but my kids are obsessed with candy. I think they love candy more than most things. Uh, in fact, uh, just a week and a half ago, we took the kids to Great Wolf Lodge over our fall break, and I asked Bryson after the trip, you know, Great Wolf Lodge, water parks and Magic Quest and all this stuff, all this fun with friends. I said, what was your favorite part of Great Wolf Lodge? You know what he said to me? The trick-or-treating. They had like six stops, and he went trick or That's what he said his favorite part was. I said, boy, we could have saved a lot of money. Um, just taking them trick-or-treating. Um, anyway, there's these, there's these videos that come out, they've been coming out every year, and there's this prank, which is really kind of cruel, and I'm not going to show any of these videos because they're just too cruel and heartless, but have you seen this prank where, where parents film their kids and they tell their kids that they've eaten all of their Halloween candy? Have you seen these the last several years? And you get all of these these crazy reactions of these kids who, who their parents have just committed the ultimate betrayal and have eaten all of their Halloween candy and some of them just fall on the floor crying. Some get incredibly upset and start yelling at their parents. Others are like, have like interesting kind of surprising response like, well, I'm just disappointed. You know, it's just this funny response of these kids because, because their parents have taken away this candy which has meant so much to them. And we watch these videos, we kind of chuckle, and it's like, well, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. Like, what a disproportionate response to candy. And, and then we begin, like, you know, turning the mirror on ourselves. And um, if you, just a little confession, I, I kind of like candy too. And um, if you're ever to come to the office, we have a little stash of candy in the office um, I don't want to tell you where it is because I don't want you to eat it all. Um, but Kendra and Christine can tell you how often I frequent, you know, that, that little candy stash. So I have my own issues with candy, admittedly. But let's take that a step further. Kids who have this obsession with candy, don't we have our own obsessions? Don't we have our own things that our hearts are, are a little too attached to? Was there a football game on last night? Was there a football? Because I heard some yelling in our neighborhood because <laughs> I think there was a football game on. Sports can have that kind of 
unhealthy attachment to our hearts. Um, the things we own can have that unhealthy attachment to our hearts. Uh, where a car door hits our car door, ah, you know. Uh, our house is kind of our sanctuary. I mentioned politics and ideologies can kind of have that unhealthy hold on our hearts. See, we all have these, these weaknesses. We have those things that captivate our hearts and our minds. And, and honestly, I think really at the heart, this is what Judges is addressing that really translates into our own context and time. See, the book of Judges is really this cautionary tale of what happens when we let other things in our lives replace God. When we allow other things to have the same status in our lives as the Lord, the one who calls us to love him above all else. In fact, in the book of Judges, we're introduced to what commentators refer to as the Judges cycle. And there's this cycle that keeps repeating in the book of Judges in chapters 3 through 16. Our, our passage operates as this, this kind of introduction or summary of sorts, telling us and giving some foreshadowing of how the book of Judges is going to play out. The book of Judges has 12 judges mentioned. Now, that's a significant number. Six of those judges are kind of just meant in, are mentioned in passing. We're not given many details. But six other of those judges were actually given these narratives, and that forms the narratives of the book of Judges. Uh, and, and we see this cycle playing out in those six narratives of those six specific judges. Othniel, Ehud in chapter 3, Deborah, chapter 4 and 5, Gideon, 6 through 8, Jephthah in 10 through 12, and then Samson in chapters 13 through 16. Now the judges' cycle can really be broken down uh, in, in multiple different ways. Uh, on the right is, is the uh, judges' cycle explained by Tim Keller. And he gives us seven different movements in the cycle. Uh, you see that in a circle. Uh, the Bible Project simplifies that to five different movements. For our purposes this morning, we're going to stick to four. And so we're going to look at four different movements in the judges' cycle, sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. We're going to say a few words on, on, on how those cycles play out in the book of Judges and maybe try to make some parallels to our time today. Let's begin with that first movement in the cycle, sin, or Israel's rebellion. We read in our passage, verse 11, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, or Baals in the Hebrew. We're told the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord, which begs the question, well, what, what was the evil that they did? Now, what, did you notice in our passage that we read in chapter 2, what was our passage focusing on? Let me just repeat some of the things we read in, our, in chapter 2. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They followed. They worshipped various gods, served Baals and Ashtoreths, right, etc., etc., etc. The primary focus, did you notice, in the book of Judges is not on specific sins like stealing or murder or adultery, but the focus in the book of Judges is idolatry, serving other gods, this is what is consistently mentioned throughout the book of Judges, that the people of God did evil. What is he referring to? Idolatry. Serving false idols and false gods. For, for the Israelites, they consistently and continuously, in the book of Judges, we're told, gave themselves in service to the idols of the Canaanite gods. And, and, and they, they served these Canaanite gods, the Canaanites who were allowed to remain in the promised land around them. And this, of course, led to other sins, certainly. But the root of those sins were turning away from the Lord and giving themselves over to Canaanite gods and Canaanite religions, like the Baals and the Asherahs, right? Embracing this kind of corrupt religion and all that went with those religious practices. Now, as we step back into our modern context, this can feel a little irrelevant, right, if we're honest, right? And what I mean by that is, is today most of us probably don't struggle with, with bowing to a golden statue to Baal. Uh, most of us aren't setting up Asherah poles in our front yard, right? Um, but, but if you think about it, idols in our secular context has, has kind of taken on a different feel. And we kind of hinted at that at the beginning. Modern idols uh, can be described as anything that takes the place of God in our lives. It's the things in our life that we look to 
for happiness, for fulfillment, for identity, for security, for comfort. And so we have to ask ourselves, where do we look for to find those things? Maybe not where do we look for, but who or what do we look for, for fulfillment, for happiness, for identity, for security, for comfort. Here's a quick test, and it's on the screen. To ask ourselves, where, where do we invest our attention? Where do we give our time? Where do we give our energy? What, what fills our search engine, or what's that algorithm on Facebook? What is that feeding us? Because that might be a hint of where we are giving our time and energy and attention. A second question, where do we invest our assets? Where do we spend our, our, our resources and money? And the final question is, where, where, do we, where do we invest our affection? What are the things in this world that really have a grab a hold of our heart, that we are filled with passion? And it doesn't mean we can't invest in other things or we can't have a passion for other things, but, but how does that compare to our investment in the things of God and the things of the kingdom of God? Just good questions to ask as we think about sin, as we think about idols. Now, as we think about this, this, this betrayal of Yahweh, this sin, this first movement in that cycle, one of the things that's important to recognize is this was the primary warning given to the people before they entered the promised land, the land of Canaan. God understood that this idolatry would be, would be a trap for them, that this idolatry would, would, would lead to all kinds of corruption and destruction. And, 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 and because he understood what this, this, these Canaanite religions were, were evil at their core, and for us, maybe we have a hard time, like, understanding, like, well, what's going on? Like, okay, is it that big of a deal? What we have to understand is that Canaanite religious practices included a, a, a many different things, uh, but one of them was child sacrifice. And so there was a lot at stake that had very real impact on the people of God. If they turned to these Canaanite gods, do you see how this could just lead to all kinds of horrendous things? And God was well aware of this idolatry and how they would destroy the people and God's redemptive plan for the world. Our passage reveals this aroused the Lord's anger and led to Israel's oppression. And let's talk about oppression. That's the second movement in the judges' cycle. We read in verse 12, they aroused the Lord's anger and in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them over into the hands of raiders who plundered them. Now, a quick word about the Lord's anger, and we've talked about this before, but it's important to mention that the Lord's anger is not a contradiction to the Lord's love, but, but anger is actually a derivative of love. Anger derives from love. The opposite of love is, is apathy. If you don't love, you just don't care. And you only get angry about things and people that you actually care about, that you love, Right? And so just as a parent gets upset at their kids when, when their kids are fighting with each other or hurting each other, or parents get upset when, when their kids are fighting with others and maybe hurting other people, right? That, that is anger because they love their kids and they want what's best for their kids. And they know that, that there's a better plan and this ang this, these behaviors of their kids is gonna lead toward their own destruction in the same way. God gets angry because he loves his people. Does that make sense to you with me? And so then we read that the Lord gave them, in other translations, gave them over to the hands of raiders. The anger leads Yahweh, leads, leads the Lord to give the people over to their enemies. Now, this can be difficult, right? Like, to kind of wrestle with and grasp with. And we might feel that it's a little harsh, but think about it. God, God is a God of love. And God is one who's not going to coerce. He's not going to force his people to follow him or worship him or love him. God longs for us and for his people to love him and to give their lives willingly over and love has to be an act of the will. It cannot be forced upon us. So when God's people say, we want to serve these Canaanite gods, we want to serve these false idols, God in his mercy says, okay. You want to serve foreign gods? See where that goes. And what happens is, as the people of Israel begin serving foreign gods, the result of that is they become subservient to the Canaanites. 
you want to give your lives, you want to serve these Canaanite gods, what ends up happening is you're going to become forced into labor and slavery of the Canaanite people. And that's where the oppression comes. God is basically giving Israel what they're asking for. And it leads to oppression. It leads to slavery. That doesn't answer all the questions, but hopefully it kind of helps us kind of come to terms with some of it. And similarly, as we step back into our own context, when we give our hearts and we give our lives to, uh, to things of this world, when we give our hearts over to idols in the secular world, those things, whether they're material or ideological or persons, have a way of owning us. When we give our lives in service to these idols and, and our hearts are wrapped up in them, they begin to control us. We don't, we don't have control over them. Some examples. When, when buildings become our idols, and churches have done this, not this church, I'm sure, but right where, where we have a new building project and we just got the carpet redone and that building becomes an idol, then we become obsessed with carpet stains over and against being hospitable to those we want to come into our building. Are you with me? When ideologies, and we've seen this a lot lately, when, when our politics become our idols, what happens? We, we demonize those on the other side. And it can lead to some really dangerous and disastrous things. When the other side is simply an enemy that must de- be defeated, idolatry. And you see how when we place things in the place of God, those things begin to inform us and tell us how we are to live instead of the other way around. And there's a danger in that, friends. There is a danger in that. Sin, oppression. The third movement is repentance. And, and, and notice that repentance we, we, we get trapped in this oppression until we recognize our oppression and like the Israelites, cry out to God in repentance. Now in our, in our passage this morning in chapter two, it's pretty subtle. Repentance, right? Uh, we read in verse 15, they were in great distress. Now you might be saying, great distress, that's not really repentance, right? And you're right, uh, being in great distress doesn't necessarily lead to or mean repentance. But if you were to read actually all six of those cycles in the stories of the judges, right, in those chapters later on, 3 through 16, what you see is that great distress actually leads, uh, almost in every instance, the people to cry out to the Lord, and I have the different narratives listed and, and the, the language used in Othniel and Ehud. They cried out to the Lord. Uh, then it kind of gets ramped up with Deborah and Gideon. They cried out to the Lord for help. In fact, by the time we get to, um, to Jephthah, it's, we, they cried out to the Lord. And then where we read, actually, they, they name their, their wrongdoing. They name their sin and they repent to the Lord as well. Now that pattern keeps going until actually we get to Samson. And, and interestingly enough, we get to the account of the people of God in the Samson narrative, and interestingly enough, we don't read anywhere in that narrative that the people ever cry out to the Lord. They, and the question is why? I mean, they are enslaved. We're told that much in the beginning of chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14. They're, they're, they're enslaved by the Philistines, yet they don't resist. They almost kind of just acknowledge it as just a fact. And, and the reason is the Philistines have embarked a new strategy. Listen to what Tim Keller says in his uh, commentary, commentary of sorts, Judges for You, an excellent resource. He writes this about the Israelite people uh, under the control of the Philistines during the time of Samson. He writes this. In the past, Israel groaned and agonized under their occupations by pagan powers because their domination was military and political. But now, during this time of Samson, the people are virtually unconscious of their enslavement because its nature is that of cultural accommodation. The Israelites do not groan and resist their captors now because they have completely adopted and adapted the values, mores, and idols of the Philistines. Whoa. 
In fact, if you look at Samson's life himself, he's, he's a Nazarite, he's, he's under the Nazarite vow. Samson himself more often resembles Canaanites than he does the people of God in Israel. Breaking his Canaanite vow, like digging honey out of a carcass, right? He marries a Philistine woman. As, as I read that quote and I think about this context and, and, and landing in our time and place today, I'm, I'm humbled and I'm convicted by the parallel that's drawn to our place and time. Think about sin, these idols of the heart. We think about how they oppress and control us and they hold us captive. And I begin to wonder how many of us, myself included, are held captive by idols and ideas, etc., and we don't even realize it. And friends, when, whenever we kind of offer this kind of convicting word, I, my intention is not for us to, to begin pointing the fingers, oh yeah, I know that, look at that person. No, no, no. Hold up the mirror. Hold up the mirror and consider your own blind spots. And, and as people who are on this journey of being found and formed by and following Jesus, we should often be holding up the mirror and praying to God, Lord, help me see what I do not see in my life. Lord, help me see the idols and the ideas and all these things that have my heart held captive and are controlling me and pressing me, oppressing me in ways that I don't even realize. Sin, oppression, repentance. Finally, the cycle leads us to deliverance. God in his grace offers deliverance. We read in, in verse 16 of our passage this morning, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Deliverance would come. This point in Israel's story, that deliverance came through judges who God empowered to do God's work. They were emboldened, they were empowered to defeat the oppressive Canaanites at that time. And if you read these stories, what you're going to find is that they're not boring, but they're also not G-rated. So I would suggest not cracking open the book of Judges and reading that to your five-year-old as bedtime reading, okay? These are, these are stories of, of flawed judges uh, bringing deliverance in, in pretty violent ways, uh, think, stories that are kind of gross, uh, but we see these stories of these judges, Ehud, who kills Eglon, Wow, uh, Deborah, this female judge, which is, which is pretty awesome. Um, but what happens with Jael and a tent peg, if you remember some of these stories, Gideon has these 300 men uh, who defeat uh, thousands, but he's still flawed at the end of his story. We see that. Samson, who's, who's kind of just this brute of a guy who doesn't really think all that much with his brain. But the Lord uses these judges to deliver the people over and over. We have six of these judges' cycles. But what does chapter 2 foreshadow is that this cycle continues over and over, but it's, it's not an ascending cycle. It's not like this cycle continues and the people of God are getting better and better. No, no, no. It is a downward spiral. The cycle keeps repeating, but progressively things in Israel are getting worse and worse and worse. The cycle is a downward spiral. We read in, in verse 19 of our passage this morning that when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. And what we see is, as we read the book of Judges, as a whole, what you see is, is that the people's offenses continue to get worse in these six cycles. The judges become increasingly flawed and even corrupt in these six cycles. And with the results even, those are becoming increasingly mixed because partway through, suddenly, as these cycles continue to decline, we have infighting and battles for, between Israelites. We have a lack of peace. We have less victory. And by the time we get to chapters 17 through 21, things have devolved into violence, abuse, and civil war. Like, it is, it is bad. Like, I, I hesitate. I, I, don't, I don't even want to mention some of the stories and some of the things that we read in those chapters because it's, it's, it's horrifying and it's disturbing what we read that happens as things continue to spiral out of control in the land of Israel. 
But in those chapters, chapters 17 through 21, all of these five chapters are held together by a common thread, a verse that is repeated four different times. At the beginning, in chapter 17, verse 6, and the very last verse in the book of Judges, 21, uh, verse 25, we read these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this one verse describes perfectly all that's happening by the end of the book of Judges, that everyone's just doing as they think is right. There's, there's chaos, there's manipulation, there's abuse, there's infighting, civil war in these final chapters of Judges. It's a snapshot of what happens, right? And not only that, but it's a snapshot of how Judges offers modern Christian readers an incredible connection to our current cultural moment as well as a connection to Jesus. And as we close, let's cover both of those. Let's first connect this to our current time and place today. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We mentioned the idols of our day. It's easy to, to, to point to it's easy to point to, to money. It's easy to point to success or politics. But at the root of all of these idols, there's an ideology. It's on the screen. Radical, expressive individuals. Just think of extreme individualism. It's, it's the worship of the self. That's the primary idol of our day. And this ideology guides our world. You do you. Become your truest self. Be your own master. Live your own truth. Each and every one of us, according to this ideology, is responsible for defining and defending our own unique identity, right? Promoting and, and projecting this unique identity and happiness. And do you realize that that is a weight that none of us was intended to bear? That I have to decide who I am and why that should matter to you? Do you understand how crushing that is on the human person and soul? And beyond that, without any standard of truth or ethics, if we're all left to do what is right in our own eyes as the book of Judges offers, it's a stark warning where it leads. If we're all just doing what we think is right in our own eyes, it leads to a world, to kind of put it a little harshly, uh, that looks like a bunch of grown adults acting like children who've just found out their Halloween candy was eaten. We lack sensibility, we lack perspective, we lack compassion, we lack grace, and we lack love. And instead, we're left with just this single-minded obsession with the idols that we have decided define us and will bring us happiness. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in the book of Judges, it was, it was chaos, it was destruction, and it led to death. Which leaves us with a question, so what's the answer? The verse says, in those days there was no king. So is it, is it that the people of God needed a king? Is it a king who can finally rule us with strength, authority, and power? Now in a few weeks we're going to continue the story and see where having a king over Israel and how that works out. Just a little hint, not so great. <laughs> the monarchy leads to a divided kingdom. And the reason for that is because the people of God already had a king. Yahweh, the Lord was to be their king. The Lord, Yahweh, was the one who the people were to give their hearts, their allegiance, their worship, their entire lives to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, right? Yahweh was to be king. But here's where this thread connects us to Jesus. Because Yahweh God would take on flesh. God would send his son, Jesus Christ, who would come as king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, God enfleshed. And this king, how did he rule? Jesus Christ willingly laid down his own life on a cross for you and for me. This king would be, would be raised from the grave and he would return to the Father. And this king would promise that one day he would come again. And when he would come, his kingdom,
kingdom, his reign would be fully restored on earth. And we as God's people wait for that day in anticipation. Amen? Here's the invitation for us this morning. We have this ideology in our world and we keep, can keep living according to the, this ideology of our time. And we can keep exhausting ourselves, trying to define our uniqueness and our identity and trying to prove to everyone else why we are valuable and why they should agree with who we are. Or we can hear this invitation from the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ who has a new way and he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, those of us who are exhausted trying to prove to the world that we are worthy of their time, attention, and love, Jesus says, no, you are already worthy. Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ gives us a new identity. Jesus Christ, this gospel of grace, gives us something that we can solidly sink our feet into. This is the gospel of grace. You are loved more than you can imagine. Let's pray and thank God for this gift. Will you join me? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that recount events and moments from thousands of years ago continue to land and speak truth in our lives today. Holy Spirit, we pray that, that you would do the work of, of conviction, challenge, as, as well as the work of comfort to your people this morning. Lord Jesus, that we would hear from you. And Lord, as, as we spend some time in worship, this next song, which, which beautifully retells the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we sing. May we listen. May we pray. And Lord, in this moment, may we see this as an opportunity for your spirit to minister and to speak into our hearts revealing the truth of this good news. And may we be transformed. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us.
good news that God Christ has done all that we need that this gospel of Jesus Christ may that may may that chorus of praise and worship be the defining things the defining thing in our lives individually and as a community can I get an amen to that that Jesus Christ would be our king and our Lord and in that there's great joy and we're going to have a lot of fun as we Enjoy some fellowship and some food together. But as you go from here, receive God's blessing. And as uh, Pastor Daryl reminded us, hold our hands out like this to receive this blessing that is not from me. It's from the one who created heaven and earth. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.